0: I left. I... A wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. <laughs> Iraq, too. Iraq, too. I'm, a hawk. I'm a hawk. I would've picked up arms myself to prevent 9-11 again. I left. As president, I wanted to give myself the Congressional Medal of Honor, but they wouldn't let me do it. They wouldn't let me do it. I said, I'm going to give myself the... I've always wanted that. We just flew B-52 B 52 b one bombers in the South China Sea. We're not gonna pay attention. On July 18, 2023, Army Private Travis King was supposed to board a flight from his duty station in South Korea back to Fort Bliss, Texas to face disciplinary action for an incident where he punched someone. He instead left his bags at the airport, signed up for a civilian tour of the demilitarized zone, and snuck off the tour across the DMZ into the north. He was quickly detained by North Korean military. A report from North Korean media stated, quote, During the investigation, King confessed that he had decided to come over to the DPRK as he harbored ill feeling against inhumane treatment and racial discrimination within the U.S. Army. He expressed his willingness to seek refuge in the DPRK or a third country, saying that he was disillusioned at the unequal American society, end quote. Now, we haven't heard from Private King himself. Maybe the claims of discrimination stem from the disciplinary action he was facing. Maybe it's all a cover to get out of trouble, or maybe he never said any of it. But one thing we know for certain is that he made the decision to willingly cross into North Korea, knowing he'd be quickly picked up by the military he had just been technically at war with. King became the latest in a slow drip of U.S. troops to walk across the border into the arms of their so-called enemies. The most notable defectors are immortalized in a photo from the Korean War, where six American soldiers who were captured on the battlefield posed with Korean and Soviet flags and a banner which reads, quote, we stay for peace. They were among 24 American POWs who refused to return to the United States in an act of defiance against the war and the propaganda surrounding it. Today, we are hearing the little known story behind that powerful photograph, mainly through the narratives of two men who later wrote books about it, on this episode of Radical Military History. Radical. 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 Military.
1: Military. History. History. Today, your soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Coast Guard are better educated than before are better informed. And understand what the war is all about.
0: Joining us again is former Green Beret and Staff Sergeant Evan Brown, who was featured in our June episode of Wake Ups. Evan is both a history teacher and history graduate student who dug into the source material for us to learn about today's story. Evan, welcome back to the show. Yeah, man. Glad to be back. Good to see you again. Yeah, I'm I'm pumped for doing this because this is our I guess, first installment of a radical military history episode that lives as its own episode. I think listeners of the show, listeners of the old show anyway, would remember that this was a segment that Spencer and I did, like tagged on to the end of many episodes. So it ended up being like a five to 10 minute radical military history section about soldiers' rebellions, acts of resistance, heroism, the kind of things that they don't teach you when you go through the army or whatever branch you were in, but are very important stories for us to talk about and learn lessons from. So our first episode, full episode of Radical Military History, we're going to talk about those Americans who, in the Korean War, ended up on the other side as POWs and decided they liked it better over there.
1: Yeah, yeah, they decided to uh, stay behind. And it's actually, like, really um, interesting because, like, I've wanted to look more into this forever because I saw the picture of American soldiers who are standing in front of a truck and the sign says, we stay for peace. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing that like years ago. And I thought to myself, like, okay, what's this all about? And it was like early on in like my political development. I was like, well, shit, I didn't even know anyone chose to stay behind. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until recently that, you know, we had this conversation and I was like, yeah, you know, I think I'm going to start the first episode by looking into those 21 soldiers who decided to stay. And then it just so happened that PV2 King ran across the border. And, you know, according to the North Koreans, he stayed because of racial discrimination, or he Mm -hmm. did that because of the racial discrimination he was experiencing in the military. And it just so happens that that's the exact reason, as well as the racial experiences in the United States, that three of the POWs who were Black soldiers chose to also not go back to the United States. So I'm not going to, you know, based on my own experiences in the military, I, I definitely could believe that that's 100% a
0: reason why. Yeah, that's actually what I was just going to ask. Like, obviously, we can't know and until we hear from Private King himself, but it's definitely feasible. But yeah, I also shared that same curiosity. Like, I've always seen that photo. I never was able to really find—I tried to, like, look into it, and I was never really able to find a lot of good information. But you actually read a couple books in preparation for this episode that were memoirs of soldiers who crossed. And so I think you got, you got right to the source. You got to the people themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, two guys specifically. Um, but um, before we uh, get into them, I figured it probably be best just to maybe give a brief little uh, background about, like, the Korean War in general mm-hmm. and, like, specifically how it ended in the uh, the prisoner exchange yeah. that led to this whole um, debacle that ended up happening. Right. And whoever's listening, if they want to go listen to that blowback series, which yeah. is really good because we're not going to go into as much detail as they did. For sure. Anyway, you know, World War II ends in 1945. The USSR is actually the the ones who liberate the Korean Peninsula and the United States, you know. Realizing that their main enemy was going to be communism and, you know, the USSR following World War II were able to get the Soviets to agree to a split along the 38th parallel, essentially cutting the peninsula in half. The 38th parallels just north of Seoul which is like Korea, South Korea's capital city. So that happens. And so you have this split between the two. Um, Kim Il-sun, who ends up being the leader of the North Korean section of the country, actually fought in Manchuria with a bunch of other Koreans who had fled the Japanese occupation of Korea because Korea was a Japanese colony from the beginning of the uh, 1900s. I think from about 1905 to the end of the war in 1945, Korea was a Japanese colony and under a Japanese occupation. And the Japanese were also fighting in China, right? So a bunch of Koreans fled from Korea and ended up in Manchuria. And so Kim il Sung and a bunch of other Korean communists were fighting in China. And then after the war, they come back to Korea. And the Koreans themselves are looking forward to having their country again, right, Mm -hmm. to have control of their self-determination. And anyway, this split, you know, the Americans install Sigmund Rhee in South Korea, who's basically a fascist dictator, and they start clamping down on any sort of communist movements down there, any sort of labor struggles, which culminated in the Jeju Massacre, where about 10,000 people were killed on the island of Jeju, which is just off the coast of South Korea. And that was with U.S. military assistance. So this is like what really begins to trigger the Korean War is there's a lot of fighting in the South already. Guerrilla War is already happening because of the fascist government backed by the U.S. The USSR actually leaves North Korea after a few years and, you know, allows North Korea to have their own country. And in 1950, in the summer of 1950, that's when the North Koreans cross the border and, you know, the war begins. And by 1953, it's over. The U.S. was not able to claim a military victory in Korea. And so they realized that they had a whole bunch of prisoners and they thought that because normally at the end of a war, the prisoner exchange is like a one to one forced repatriation. Right. But the U.S., who was unable to win a military victory, had all these communist prisoners, quote unquote, because you know, a lot of these soldiers were also South Korean people who had been conscripted into the North Korean army. A lot of the Chinese soldiers that had been captured had fought with Chiang Kai Shek, who was the nationalist leader fighting against the communists in China. And then after he fled to Taiwan, obviously not every, you know, nationalist Chinese person fled to Taiwan with him and, you know, stayed in China. And eventually some of them, probably kept their positions in the military. So America sees this opportunity for a big propaganda victory because they have about 20 some odd thousand, quote unquote, communist soldiers who are willing to not repatriate back to China or back to North Mm -hmm. Korea. But what the United States was not expecting was for 23 U.S. soldiers to choose repatriation to China over coming back to the United States. And that basically blew up, that overshadowed their whole hope for like a propaganda victory. So like it happened in two phases. I mean, there was a lot of debate back and forth between the two different sides about how this whole thing was gonna work out. And first was Operation Little Switch, which happened in 1952 in April, where only the sick and wounded from both sides were exchanged. And then uh, they created a neutral nations repatriation commission. And then Operation Big Switch happened a couple of months later, which is what leads to the eventual repatriation of the different people, right? So...
0: Good overview. There's this big misconception that this country was divided, the communists were in the north, and like the pro US Koreans were in the south. That was absolutely not the case. There were yeah, very no, 100%, large 100%. numbers of communists in the south, very large numbers of people who hated the United States in the south and did not want to be occupied by the US military, you know, replacing their previous, you know, they wanted to be liberated. They lived a very long time under Japanese rule and didn't want another imperialist power to come in and replace them. And so this the irony of the U.S.'s propaganda about North Korea and why we have to have so many tens of thousands of soldiers in South Korea is it's about democracy, right? North Korea mm-hmm. doesn't have democracy, and that's why we need to protect the democracy for the South Koreans. When for decades of U.S. rule, I mean, there was not even the illusion of democracy.
1: No, and they they actively suppressed people's councils and like very democratic institutions that the people themselves were creating.
0: Yes, and and by repressed we mean shooting people in the back of the head. I mean, yeah, it was and, like, and throwing them in prisons. Yeah, yeah, extremely <laughs> extremely brutal repression. And so the the communists in that situation in South Korea who were fighting and started an armed struggle against the fascists. I mean, they were a completely justified liberatory force against the extremely fascist dictator. And that massacre in Jeju was just, you know, one of many massacres that would take place by the US-backed government with US support, funding and guns. And so that kind of is the justification for the U.S. to get involved and actually try to take over all of Korea and make all of Korea no longer divided, but a one Korea under U.S. rule.
1: Yeah, which is what they tried to do during the war until the Chinese stepped in, right? Yes.
0: And of course, the Korean War was absolutely terrible for Koreans. I mean, there was like not a single building, two-story or higher building that wasn't bombed. American pilots complained at one point that there was nothing left to bomb in the country. They had bombed everything. Millions and millions of Koreans were killed. But I think what's also important for the context of this episode is it wasn't a great experience for American soldiers either. No, They had a pretty hard time in the Korean War. It did not go well. I mean, the Korean War now is known as the Forgotten War because Americans kind of wanted to move on from it. Even the Korean War Memorial that's in Washington, D.C. is like very different than the other memorials because it's like this like hidden ghostly figures. Even, my you know, I have a grandfather who was in the Korean War, an infantryman in Korea, and he, you know never even mentioned that he was there.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it came from America was not prepared or expecting to not win a war after coming off World War II. I mean, they definitely went in with attitudes that the Korean people were backwards. And, you know, you mentioning the bombing of North Korea, they actually, we dropped more bombs in North Korea than we dropped in the entirety of World War II on Germany mm-hmm. or Japan, which is insane, you know, when you think about it. Um, and in fact, like, And this might be jumping ahead briefly, but one of the POWs, the main POW we're going to talk about, Clarence Adams, actually mentioned when they were in the POW camp and people would get angry about like food and stuff that they're not having, you know, he would mention to them that. The Chinese were telling them the truth when it came to the supplies getting to the prisons and that they couldn't get any food to the U.S. prisoners because the U.S. Air Force had been bombing the supply routes so Mm -hmm. badly, you know. So it's like – and, you know, Clarence Adams actually, he would talk to his fellow POWs and be like, look, even our captors don't have that much food, and it's a war, so like – You know, Mm -hmm. who's going to eat first, the
0: captors or the captives? And, you know, we should be mad at our own people for bombing shit so well, you know, so. You know, there's so much more about the war to say, you know, it wasn't just bombing, but just straight up civilian massacres, arson attacks, things like that of Korean civilians. But let's get into it. So we have the end of the war. We have these 20,000 so-called communist converts that are in American custody who say, we don't want to go back. We want to stay with the capitalists. But then you have these 21 21 American soldiers who say, you know what? We don't want to go back to capitalist America. We're going to stay in China.
1: Yeah, yeah. So originally it was actually 23. And after they had agreed to stay, there was a three-month, and this was true for the uh, communist prisoners as well. There was basically like a three-month explanation period, right? And that was a period where your countrymen could come and talk to you and basically try to convince you to come back to your country, right? Yeah, for real. Yeah. So <laughs> so two Americans ended up going back. They chose not to repatriate in that three months. And at least one of them ended up going to prison for like 10 years when he mm-hmm. got back to the United States. So they instantly thrown in jail. So like the other 21 guys obviously knew they weren't going to make that choice. And they were all committed to going to China at that point. Yeah. So anyway, one guy specifically I wanted to talk about was Clarence Adams and then a buddy of his, Morris R. Willis. They both ended up staying in China for 12 years after the war, and they both ended up writing books. I mean, Clarence Adams, his book is kind of like a memoir, but it's it was edited by his daughter and the historian who wrote it because he had passed away before... This historian was able to talk to him, and so a lot of it is stories from his daughter, and like he had written, kept a lot of records himself. So that's where they got a lot of the information. And then uh, Morris's was actually he he told the story to a historian, and he that's where his book Turncoat, which was printed in 1966 came from. But before I get into the two of them specifically, I just kind of wanted to mention kind of the background of the 21 who ended up staying. Mm-hmm. So like I said, it was meant to be a big propaganda victory for the United States, but um once they found out that these 21 soldiers weren't going to come back, that overshadowed everything because Americans, you know, thought to themselves, how could these US boys choose communism over democracy? So like They had to come up with reasons for why this was. So the U.S. News and World Report editorialized that these were men who ratted on their comrades, who suffered unhappy home lives, and were lacking in formal education. Newsweek described the defectors as the sorriest, most shifty-eyed, and groveling bunch of chaps, asserting that about half were bound together more by homosexualism than communism. The Chicago Tribune, in the Chicago Tribune, Colonel Robert McCormick contended that most of the effectors had come from the slums of New York, where subversive European ideologies flourished. So they were trying to come up with all these reasons for why why this would happen. And when it came to the three Black soldiers specifically, they had to make it about brainwashing by the communists and not racism as being the reason these guys would have decided to stay. But in truth... The 21, they were, 18 of them had been regular army career soldiers. Three were African-Americans, like I mentioned. One was born abroad in Belgium specifically. He ended up going to China and then moving back to Belgium after a couple years. Another's parents were foreign-born, Greece specifically. All the rest of them were men of like, you know, were white dudes, Anglo-Saxon or Irish backgrounds whose family had been in the United States for generations. Three of them had attended college. Six were high school graduates. The majority of them are practicing Protestants and Catholics. They came from the small towns of rural America. Six grew up in large cities like Detroit, Baltimore, and Clarence Adams, the guy we're going to focus on, who grew up in Memphis. A lot of them did come from broken homes or had lost a parent to death. None was especially political before joining the military, with the exception of one guy whose parents were communists in Greece. He actually ended up staying in China afterwards for the rest of his life. He came back to the U.S. in the 70s and then back to China and ended up dying there. He's like,
0: I'm getting out of here. Yeah, yeah. He goes, Never mind.
1: Yeah. And then and then obviously all were uh, very angry or disappointed with something in their lives. But, you know, that describes the experience of hundreds, if not thousands yeah. of, of U.S. POWs who didn't choose to stay. So what was interesting enough, though, that was not mentioned in all these press releases is that, like, Under the terms of the treaty, all these guys got to choose, like, any neutral country that would take them, you Mm -hmm. know? And so, like, the fact that they were called turncoats and defectors is—and they make that argument themselves is, like, that makes no sense. We were allowed a choice, and we chose this, you know?
0: Right, One question, I wonder if you know the answer to this, is do we know anything about, like, the context of how they became POWs? Like, I imagine— I imagine there's not many ways to become a POW in the Korean War. It probably means that you, like, lost a battle yeah, and are surrendering yeah. because you've taken heavy losses and are, are no longer continuing to fight. So these 21 soldiers, like, these aren't people who just, like, escaped in the middle of the night and walked over to enemy lines. These are people that survived probably some kind of major battle and then were captured oh, sure. as a result of surviving that. So they're all people who were really in the thick of it in the war and decided that, you know, so it may, it gives it kind of a different weight to say, you yeah, know, I'm actually going to stay with the people that were shooting at us. Not
1: only that, but yeah, so the the majority of US POWs came, I want to say it was within the first 12 months of the war. Obviously, a, a lot of them came with the initial North Korean invasion because North Korea was able to push the South Korean and US military forces back to that pocket around Pusan And it wasn't until MacArthur, who's a massive racist and piece of shit, his landing on Incheon, you know, which even though he was a racist and piece of shit, that was a good bit of military strategy there. But um, his landing was able to cut off the North Korean supply lines, which allowed the U.S. to push back up through to where they started to put pressure on China. And then China invaded. And that massive Chinese invasion that pushed the U.S. back to the 38th parallel That's specifically when these two guys, Willis and Adams, were uh, captured. So yeah, they were they were all captured with like having major like hand to hand combat, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of fights. Like, and yeah, not only was it through actual just terrible fighting, but then they were forced on, you know, a death march to the prison camps, which were up closer to the border border with China. So yeah, not only did they experience the fighting in Korea, but they also then experienced these marches to the camps where both guys discuss like, I don't know. It's one of those weird things where I'm not trying to be like, you know, North Koreans and Chinese were terrible because the U S treated POWs like shit too. Mm -hmm. And like, it's always been a story in history where like prisoners are being marched to where they need to go. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the wounded and the sick tend to fall out. And then, They happen to get shot, and I'm not claiming that's good. You know, I'm—I mean, that's terrible. But at the same time, I can understand why those types of things happen. It's a fucking war, right? Mm So, so I'm not trying to, you know, make any sort of comment about the Chinese or North Koreans being particularly vicious. In fact, Morris mentions in his book about how his unit actually came across two Chinese soldiers who were wounded pretty bad, and they could still walk, but they were taking no prisoners and the sergeant or the NCO in charge like passed the buck off basically on like, you know, executing them. And Mm -hmm. it was two like young, like 18 year old kids who were like, I guess, trying to prove their manliness that agreed to do it, you know, Mm -hmm. and they executed. So it was like, you know, both sides were, so I'm not.
0: Yeah. And there's also a difference where like American soldiers that executed Chinese and Korean POWs, no American soldier who did that had had like a family member killed by Korean or Chinese soldiers, whereas you can imagine, probably many of the Korean soldiers that ended up mistreating American soldiers, like, you know, could have had their entire families recently killed by them. And so, of course, a little different context when you're the occupied country that's fighting a a foreign invader. So,
1: yeah, thanks for bringing that up, because um, that was something I read that uh, the North Koreans Definitely treated the American soldiers worse than the Chinese soldiers mm. did. In fact, when Clarence Adams got captured, he said, you know, he got surrounded by Chinese soldiers. And one of them that could speak English came up and hugged him and said, you're not the exploiter, you're the exploited. And, you know, when you pick up your gun, you're our enemy. But when you put them down, you're our friend. And like our war is against Wall Street, not you kind of wow. stuff, you know? Yeah. Which is pretty, pretty crazy. Reading that kind of stuff. I was like, Jesus, man, I was not. Yeah. You know,
0: <laughs> man, that's heavy. Yeah, I know, right? I can see why they converted that guy. Shit. Yeah. yeah, That's a pretty compelling argument.
1: Yeah. So, um, but anyway, I'm going to get into a little bit about who Clarence Adams was. Mm -hmm. So he was a a black man who was born in Memphis in 1929. His grandparents had moved up from Mississippi in the 1890s during a big migration of a bunch of African-Americans out of the, the deep south to more northern cities, His father worked as an educator at uh, Booker T. Washington High School, and his mother actually was a student there. And, you know, he doesn't go into detail about how exactly she got pregnant by his father. Just that one day she went back to his father's place with him and she ended up pregnant. And then it was like, you know, the nineteen. early 1930s, late 1920s. So, you know, having a child outside of wedlock was pretty looked down upon. His dad, and he ended up not really knowing his father at all. His dad basically left town, went back to Mississippi. And for the first six of his years, years of his life, he grew up under his grandparents' tutelage until they ended up passing away. And upon their deaths, that's when he moves in with his mother and her, I want to say, husband named Fred Peoples. And they had three daughters together. And he was always kind of like, it seems like the black sheep of the family in that regard. I think just in the times and being like a child out of wedlock, I think it was an embarrassment to his mother. And he was very resourceful as a child. And anyway, he grows up in Memphis, Tennessee. And He talks in the book about a couple of the different experiences he had as a kid. You know, like the schools were still segregated at this time and all the books they had were hand-me-down books from the white school. Their football teams were all tattered hand-me-down jerseys from the white school. There were only a few parks in Memphis open to Black people and even parks in Black neighborhoods were still considered white parks and you weren't allowed to walk through them. They couldn't use any of the swimming pools in towns. They had to use creeks, bayous, and the backwater of the Mississippi River. And obviously, you know, being a, a black person living in the United States, especially in the, you know, 30s and 40s, well, I don't even know if that's even necessary to qualify at this point. But, um, you know, he had a lot of run-ins with the police. He remembers at one point in a diner, the cops came in and they instantly had them all line up on the wall and started searching them and everything. And, you know, you couldn't use the toilets or eat in any of the shops on Main Street. So if you wanted to use a toilet, you had to pee in an alley. And if the cops found you peeing in an alley, they beat the shit out of you. So, you know, he he has all these experiences growing up and he actually... He ends up joining the military because he essentially had to run from the police. Mm. The night before he went to join, him and his friends had been out doing their thing, and and a white man had come up to him. And he said that he was probably like a tramp or a hobo or something, but basically he started asking him, you know, hey, where can I get a black woman? And they were basically like, you know, hey, you know, whatever, get out of here. They turn around, tried to walk away. He kept following them, asking them to get him a black woman. And one of Clarence Adams' friends turns around and punches the guy in the face. And then they all just kind of jump him and then run away. And then the next day, he gets in, in a fight with a local bully, who I guess was the biggest guy on the block. Very um, 30s name. They called him Bop Bam. But anyway, <laughs> he gets in this fight. He gets in a fight with Bip, Bip, Bop Bam and everyone knew that he was the guy he didn't want to met. It's like big, bad Leroy Brown, you know? So his
0: name is literally like <laughs> punching sounds.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he gets in a fight with this guy and this guy's like, you know, kicking his ass and he ends up like him and all his friends carried knives, you know, and he ends up pulling out this knife and he, he said he choked up on the knife, which, you know, to him meant that it wasn't going to go in deep enough that it was going to kill this guy. Right. So he just like started stabbing him in the chest and then he ended up getting up and running off because he had been stabbed a bunch and he goes to the hospital and then the next day there's a knock at the door and it's two white policemen and he's in the kitchen and uh, you know they're asking if if he's home if Cla- his mom had answered the door and he's asking if he's home if clarence is home and you know he mentions like any black person at that point in time if the cop showed up to your door asking for someone you're gonna say you don't know where they are And so Clarence uses this opportunity while his mom's talking to the police to skip out the back door, and he runs down the road to the local military recruiter office, and he says, hey, I want to join, and it just so happens that the bus is leaving to fucking Alabama or wherever it's going that afternoon, and so he's like, yeah, I'm going, and he signs up, and he goes, and he joins, right? Which is funny because it's like, of course, that's how it would work in the 40s. Yeah, snuck out a back window and
0: jumped on like a moving bus going to basic training. Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah, yeah. essentially. That was September 11th, 1947, that he joins the military. And so in 1948, that's when uh, President Truman desegregates the army. But in June 1950, when the Korean War breaks out, Clarence Adams and many other black soldiers are still in all black units And, you know, generally, just like in the Civil War, the like officers Mm -hmm. were white guys, right? Right. You know, he had also had a couple of relatives who had served in World War II, and had talked about how places in Europe there was like less racial discrimination. And they talked about how in even in the north of the United States, there was less racial discrimination. And so during his time, he ends up in New Jersey prior to his first trip to Korea because he was actually in Korea twice and he decides to test out this this new paradise where black people and white people can eat in the same you know restaurant and he goes into he goes into a restaurant in New Jersey you know dressed in his military uniform and everything there was a sign that said whites only but you know he sat down and he expected some service and the two white workers there the two women at the diner never came over to his table and then some white people came in and they served them and he realized that the North is just as racist as the South, you know? So he finished his training actually as a machine gunner in December of 1947. And he ends up in Korea in 1948. He spends like his year or whatever he needs to spend there. And then he ends up being sent to Japan before he has to eventually go back to the United States. And even in Japan, segregation was a thing. So there was two specific towns that black soldiers could be in and if they were caught by white MPs in Tokyo or Osaka or the other like cities designated for only white soldiers they would be thrown in in jail basically and a bunch of japanese people in those towns also treated black people pretty terribly because white soldiers had been telling them like all these stories about black soldiers so like this is his experience right in the military and he ends up back in Fort Lewis to get discharged in the summer of 1950. And that's exactly when the Korean War breaks out. And President Truman says that all soldiers with less than one year of service are extended for 12 months. So he Stop he's lost. going- yeah, he, he gets stop lost. Yeah, and he gets sent back to Korea, and so he gets sent back to Korea. And this is the point in time where um, the North Koreans have pushed the Americans into the Pusan Perimeter, just that little pocket. And he's involved in the fighting. He actually ends up in our, an artillery unit because they just they needed people in places. And he ends up in an all black like heavy artillery unit with one hundred fifty five millimeter howitzers or whatever as an ammo runner. And you know he's involved in pushing the Koreans out of. The south, back over the 38th parallel and up near China. And he was actually talking about how he was enjoying his like Thanksgiving meal or whatever when the Chinese attacked. And it turned into this big fight, and the Americans are all trying to escape and run backwards. And his unit is sacrificed to try and save white soldiers. He mentions, so yeah, it's pretty crazy. He mentions in his book, he mentions his disillusionment. You know, and how black soldiers in Korea, you know, would speak amongst themselves about what they were doing over there. Like, see, because he even says people back home later accused us of having been brainwashed by the Chinese. But even before Mao's troops entered the war, some of us had begun to think that the war was stupid and increasingly questioned the role of we were supposed to play. For Black soldiers, this was sort of a hush-hush thing. We whispered about among ourselves. If we talked openly, the military could have accused us of being cowards in the face of the enemy and had us court-martialed. After all, we had raised our right hand and sworn to fight for our country. But among ourselves, we said, what do we want with Korea? Korea can't hurt us. The Koreans can't fly to America and do anything to us. So we had begun to talk like this, but very quietly. He was wondering, how could we believe that we were really fighting for our country? That he says, to be honest, once we were put on the front lines, we fought to survive. We didn't feel any lofty mission. When the battle came to us, we had no choice but to fight in order to live. You fight hardest when it's something you truly believe in. But what were we fighting for? To be oppressed, to be segregated so the whites could continue their discrimination against us after we returned home? So these are the feelings that him and, and many other black soldiers are happening. There's actually a book I didn't read, which anyone, if they want to try and find it, What Has Akami Ever Done to Black People? And it's a black soldier's memoir of his time in Korea. Yeah, so those are the feelings that he has. And, you know, as this retreat is happening, you know, he realizes that he sees a bunch of the light artillery guys running past him. And then he sees like a white rifle platoon like running past him. And he's like, wait a sec, you know, like, the way the military works, we should be trying to get our heavy artillery out of here first. You know, these guys should be protecting our retreat, but we're the ones being told to turn around and protect their retreat. So that was kind of essentially how he ends up getting captured is being forced to to defend,
0: you know, yeah, white soldiers. To cover the retreat of white soldiers. You yeah, know? yeah, That's... exactly.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so then he, he, you know, he ends up getting captured. And like I, I mentioned earlier, you know, the Chinese say how you're not, Our enemy, you know, he says, uh, shortly after we were captured, a frontline Chinese interpreter came up to Sergeant Richards and me, and I will never forget his words. You are not the exploiters. Then he paused. You are the exploited. I have no idea what he meant. Is that what I am? I thought the exploited. He explained, when you pick up a gun, you are our enemy. When you lay down your gun, you are our friend. He smiled and hugged Richards and me. I smiled back and thought to myself, so glad to be your friend. I guess that means you won't shoot me right away. At that moment, I did not mind being the exploited if I could be his friend. Then he said, I have to go now and welcome the others. Richards and I looked at each other in bewilderment. Wow. So, Yeah. But anyway, he ends up having to go on this. I mean, it is a death march. I mean, they do. He even mentions, this is actually interesting too, because he mentions at this point in time, because he had really bad uh, frostbite and shit on his feet. So he was actually one of the ones falling out. And he um, he mentions that... Uh, I was determined to try and keep up because I had seen that those who did not just disappeared. The guards would pull them out, and the rest of us would move on. Then we'd hear shots, so we knew what had happened. I'm not sure why they did not shoot me, but maybe, just maybe, this was one of the very few times a black skin actually saved my life. I know that in the camps, the instructors talked a lot about racism, so maybe the guards had orders to keep black prisoners alive. So that's just speculation on his part, Mm -hmm. but he was—basically, his his march was him— he would get to the camps late at night, wherever the soldiers had stopped on the march for the day, and the Chinese would give him the small little ration of rice or whatever that they could give him. And then they would be like, start marching, dude, because they knew that he was going to. And so he would start along the road, and then he'd get caught up. He'd get caught up by the uh, the main march of POWs, and they would pass him. And then he would catch back up to him again, and then maybe he'd rest a little bit, and then he'd start walking before them again. And so that's kind of how how his march went.
0: Of course, that's just his speculation, but definitely feasible because we know it wars before and after that. Black soldiers were given preferential treatment by the people that they were sent to fight, including from like one of the first overseas deployments of Black soldiers or American soldiers in general, the US colonial war on the Philippines. From that war and up through the Vietnam War, you have stories yeah. of resistance fighters having a lot more sympathy. To the black soldiers who were captured or even in situations where they were going to be ambushing people and stuff, giving preferential treatment and more humane treatment and sometimes meaning not killing them. The black. Yeah. So it spans, it spans a yeah. hundred years. And so, it, you know, he's kind of in the middle of that timeline. And so it's definitely feasible that that was the reason he's still alive.
1: Yeah. Yeah, sure. And I mean, I, based on reading about this stuff, I would venture to say that that definitely probably played some sort of, of role in the, I mean, because like, even once they got to the camps, the Chinese had to separate the black and white soldiers because the white soldiers, you know, were still racist towards oh the black soldiers. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, so um, Of course. That's fucking yeah, crazy. Yeah.
0: yeah and I mean, it's, it's definitely more feasible considering that these are, you have a lot of like highly politically conscious soldiers who are fighting in the Korean, especially in the Chinese army, but in the Korean as well. I mean, they're communists.
1: Yeah. And the Chinese communist revolution had just been successful in 1949. Right. And now they're fighting this war right away against like the major capitalist imperialist force on the planet after right. World War
0: II. Yeah. And they're, of course, highly aware of the situation in the United States for black people. I mean, there's no civil rights. Oh, for I mean, sure they are. Yeah. The scourge of lynching. I mean, they're well aware of what it's like for black people in, in capitalist America. So that, you know, I'm sure informed their their decisions on, on treatment as well. But yeah, that's wild too that the the POW camps, black soldiers still couldn't catch a break from the white soldiers, and they had to be, like, saved by the captors.
1: Yeah, yeah. He actually, he mentioned in his book, he says, there was racism in the prison camps, just as there had been in the army. There were still those whites who openly called us the N-word and told us what they would do to us when they got back to the States. Whenever I encountered one of these guys, I thought to myself, and we're supposed to fight side by side with these crackers? I remember this white prisoner coming up to me in Camp 5 and saying, N-word, if I had you back home, you wouldn't talk to me like this. I told him, yeah, but you ain't home. You're a stinking prisoner just like me. And I hit him upside the head. He might have believed he was going to do all kinds of things to me if he had had me back in the States. But I showed him that as prisoners, we were equal. Wow. So racism was very much a problem in the camps as well. But yeah, so he he ends up in these in Camp Five specifically. During his time in the camps, the Chinese, you know, did put on classes for all the soldiers. And Morris Willis talks about the same thing, you know, to try and teach them about imperialism and capitalism and things like that. And eventually they just put libraries in the camps that were filled with just a bunch of books from Marx and Lenin and other people like that. And they just had voluntary study sessions. So from my understanding, there was no forced, you know, initially there was like, you know, you could call it re-education if you wanted to, but they were basically like outlining, you know, the Chinese point of view of what's going on with the war, you know? Mm -hmm. And eventually they allowed for just voluntary study groups that people could participate in. And the people who started to become more, well, they ended up being called progressives, the guys who started to, Understand the actual material conditions for the things that were happening and for the historical reasons why all these kinds of things were happening, right? And uh, Adams actually ended up being one of the ones who was able to kind of liaise with the Chinese a bit. And he mentions that they were able to hold church services on Sundays. And he also asked if they could let their cooks prepare the little food that they got. And he asked for better sanitary conditions and if they could have a library with books and newspapers. And then he mentions that, to everyone's surprise, the Chinese agreed to everything I asked for. After a couple months, they brought in bats and baseballs, footballs, books, boxing gloves, parallel bars, and a table game remarkably similar to pool. We set up cooking and sanitation committees. We exercised every day, and the guys began to get stronger. We even got some medicine that we gave to the prisoners who were medics to administer to the guys who really needed it. So... Not going to claim that the conditions in the camp were, you know, the best living conditions ever, because as we spoke earlier, you know, North Korea had been devastated by bombings by the U.S. But it does seem that, at least to some degree, the Chinese did their best to to not treat the prisoners as complete garbage. Like we mentioned, the Chinese are coming off their own revolution. I mean, there's a lot Mm -hmm. of there's a lot of excitement there, right? Of creating a new world from the old, right? So I, I mean, getting across to American soldiers that, because that's what Korea was, right? It was a war of naked imperial aggression, Mm -hmm. actually the beginning of the Cold War. And, you know, if you look into, I want to say his name is Vincent Bevins, the guy who wrote The Jakarta Method. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that's another solid book that just like, I think demonstrates the fact that you know the USSR, it's specifically after World War II did not try to continue hostilities and it was actually it was actually America who like went out of their way to try and prevent these other nations from self-determination, even though that's what had been agreed on specifically post World War One but even like after World War II right like and Korea can really be seen as the beginning of of the Cold War and like the USSR maybe, Maybe they supplied some weapons to the, the North Koreans or the Chinese, but they were not involved in the war militarily like the United States was, right? So
0: yep, yep yeah, definitely uh, recommend Jakarta Method. If you want the, a one hour cliff notes on Empire Files, we have a recent interview with Vincent Bevins that oh, is very cool and covers all the very important aspects of the book. You know, just thinking about like the fact that POWs had these like classes that they could attend or study groups on like... Marxism, and on really the Korean and the Chinese view of what was happening. And I imagine that being kind of compelling. I'm picturing the education that these soldiers had. First of all, the white soldiers, it's a very different education than the black soldiers. But even for white Americans at the time, like 1950s America, and late 1940s America, it's like, I just think of like the old like videos of those classrooms, a heavily propagandized country. You know, sure, just like sure, yeah. just brimming with just like arrogance and uber nationalism and militarism and patriotism. I mean, a very propagandized, one sided view of the world and of history and of everything. And black soldiers, of course, grew up with just the the crumbs from the table of like a pretty shitty education system anyway. But then to be able to hear and see another perspective that, you know, makes a lot of sense. You know, they're studying Marx and historical materialism and and understanding how an actual explanation that made sense about why they were in the war, how they ended up there and, and what it was really about. I'm sure that that resonated with some of them. And maybe it was the reason some of these people stayed. But, you know, I can imagine that just having this veil lifted and being able to see the perspective of the people you were being told to fight and having that perspective, you know, have a definite logic to it and not being what I'm sure they were. The soldiers were propagandized into thinking the reason that the Koreans and Chinese were fighting.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it was interesting, too, especially coming from Clarence Adams, because like one of his questions he asks is like he was saying how like the United States was saying that we were brainwashed. But he was like, how can it be brainwashed when like I look back at my life as a young black man and I had great difficulty seeing what democracy and freedom had done for me? I thought back on the cold November day when my regiment was sacrificed for the sake of protecting white units. I recalled one hot afternoon when I was 12 and was beaten up by a white man at a gas station for no reason at all, and there were so many other ingredients I had suffered growing up in Memphis. Such thinking led me to questions of why are the rich rich and the poor poor? Why do blacks always get kicked around like animals? Of course, the communists' answers to such questions were remarkably simple and almost too obvious. The more I thought about all this, the more I believed there was some truth in what the Chinese were telling us. Critics in America later called this brainwashing. But how can it be brainwashing if someone is telling you something you already know is true? You know, so I mean, when you're actually getting that education of like, no, like your life experience is real, you know? (laughs) Right.
0: Yeah, in America, you're taught there is racism because you are an inferior race, you know, whereas the Chinese would be saying there is racism because you are a divided society for the capitalism, you know, like it's, <laughs> you know, validating what you're feeling and, and that it's wrong versus saying that this is the natural order of things, as you would get in the American education at the time.
1: Yeah, exactly. Anyway, during his time in the camp, he ends up becoming a, a lecturer, basically. He was appointed um, to monitor and give lectures on feudalism, slavery, imperialism, capitalism, social development, and the accumulation of wealth. He had also become a regular contributor to the camp propaganda newspaper Toward Truth and Peace.
0: Wait, how long was he a POW?
1: Okay, so he got to the camp in December of 1950, and the war started in June of 1950. So yeah, like I said, the the majority of POWs were in the first 12 months of the war because they were in that initial invasion by the North Koreans, and then they were in the invasion by the Chinese. And he was the one who got, he got captured, caught up when the Chinese... Uh, invaded Mm -hmm. so from december 1950 until like you know and so and that was actually kind of interesting too about morris who was the white guy that um i looked into a bit and let me find the page he mentions and his was interesting because listening to him talk about why he ended up deciding to stay was because of just his disillusionment like with the military specifically during his time as a pow he was kind of funny because like a lot of his critiques on communism that he had when he came out of China to me were not critiques of communism they were more so critiques of the state in general and just being an anarchist myself I was like this isn't a critique of communism dude you're just critiquing the authoritarianism that mm. a state will tend to fall into but anyway he uh, what really got to him about being a POW was the fact that um like he says A great number of us POWs, they felt all right living in a capitalist society, that it was better than communism. But as he brooded over it, it was always on his mind. He was like, the best years of my life. I'm sitting here rotting away. Day after day, I sit in front of our shack and stare at the huge mountain right ahead of us. I felt they wouldn't get me out. I felt they were saying they had got a few suckers. They didn't care about us. I'm here suffering. While we were over here dying, the people running the thing didn't care whether they won or not. They're back over there. They can sit at home and have their wine, women, and song, cars, and all this nice life. When I joined the army, they had asked me for my preference and I put down that I wanted to go into tanks and to go to Europe. I didn't want to be in the infantry and I didn't want to be in Korea. I was fed up before I even got there and hiking up and down those mountains with the machine gun on my shoulders every step of the way deepened my anger with the army. This wasn't what I had volunteered for. So like that was really what drove him was like his two years or so that he spent as a POW just sitting there brooding on the fact that like. America doesn't care about us. Like none mm-hmm. of the people in charge care about us. You know what I mean? Like, so, so that's kind of what opened him up to the idea of communism and ended up being part of his reason for choosing to repatriate himself to China. Yeah.
0: Classic so. story. This isn't what I yeah, signed no, up right? for. I, 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 was, I was supposed to be on a beach in Italy and now here I yeah, am right? uh, yeah, lugging this yeah. thing up a mountain.
1: Yeah, right. I wrote, I wrote down like classic. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, it sounds like almost everyone I ever talked to in the military. <laughs> so anyway, so they end up, They decide to stay in China and, you know, after their three-month explanatory period.
0: Yeah. So do you know anything more about that? Like, who would they send over to try to convince them to come back? Was it, like, people they knew or were there, like, designated, like, army recruiters who'd be, like, try to convince them that America is going to be better? You know, like, how did that work?
1: They did get letters and stuff from, you know, family members back home right. in an attempt to, like, get them to not stay in
0: Korea. And right. then,
1: yeah, outside of that, it was, like, army types coming in and trying right. to talk them out of going to China.
0: Because it's it's obviously a highly political thing and decision. It's like, you know, I mean, if you're one of these few soldiers, I mean, 21 is not many, or 24 at the start of it. And it's not just like, uh, you know, you know, maybe it's cooler to live in China than to go back and live in the United States. It's like... You are going to be like a famous figure, a famous defector who is siding with this country against the United States. So it's whether or not that's the motivation of any of these people, they were well aware that that was going to be how it was framed, their decision. And so I I imagine that's a, a high pressure situation to be like. You're not just going to go off and live in some cool place in China. It's like you're going to become this national figure in the United States as like a traitor. So there had to be some pretty strong feelings outside of just for the white soldiers anyway, outside of just "Ah, I'd rather live here than live there.
1: The majority of them did not see them. I mean, well, as far as I know, none of them saw themselves as traitors. They saw themselves as they were given a choice and they chose. China, which to them at the time, you know, was a choice for peace, right? It was a choice of ending imperialism, you know? Mm. And by that time, you know, they had spent two years studying and building relationships with each other and other guys too, because like Willis even says, when he's talking about the people who stayed, he was saying that there were more who could have come, but the Chinese kept it all very secret. And as a result, most people didn't even know that anyone was going to China. Certainly Mm. from our company, there would have been four or five more and as many as 25 from the five companies in camp one alone. So it sounds like there might have been more people who would have been willing to stay, who maybe didn't know that it was an option to stay.
0: Yeah. That's really interesting. And it, Back to that banner when you just said that they, they were staying for peace. And that's with that banner mm-hmm. that we mentioned at the beginning in that iconic photo. The banner says, we stay for peace. And so it didn't necessarily mean you're staying because I've been converted to a communist or whatever, but there was something about not participating in that prisoner exchange and staying in that country that somehow promoted peace between the U.S. and Korea, the U.S. and China. And so what was that framework?
1: It was almost like a blow to imperialism, right. I feel. Because, like, Adams specifically in the 60s would put out radio messages to black soldiers fighting in Vietnam and tell them to stop fighting in Vietnam and go home and fight for freedom in the United States. Oh, for real? What? Yeah. Wait. Yeah.
0: Who was that that did that?
1: Clarence Adams. No way. Yeah, the guy we've been talking about. Yeah, while he was in China, he put out some messages like that. Shit. and like He
0: had the original Eyes Left podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah. So like for him, it was... And for him, it wasn't about communism. It was all about... He just wanted specifically being a black man, he just wanted to be treated as a person. And like, you know, his whole thing was like, don't fight for this thing, guys, go back home and, and fight for equal rights. And and the civil rights movement was actually part of the reason why he did eventually choose to come back. The cultural revolution played a part in their reasonings for coming back as well. And Mm -hmm. we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, I think for them, there was an understanding that America was a imperialist, empire and that them staying was choosing peace over continued imperialist aggression Mm. you know that's kind of the understanding that i take away from it so yeah because i mean they end up going to china and a few of them end up working in factories they ended up working in those factories because they had prior experience in factories in the united states some of them ended up on farms He's actually from Olympia, Washington, or was, because he passed away in 2003. But um, him, his name was Grayson Bell, and there was William Cowart and Lewis Griggs. And Bell described the three of them as the dummy bunch, saying that they were sent to a farm because they could not learn Chinese. So, you know, some of them, like, who weren't able to learn Chinese, ended up going to cooperative farms and stuff. A lot of them, the majority of the 21 actually ended up coming back within a couple years. Like, those three guys who went to the farm all ended up coming back to the United States by 1955. And like, I didn't really see much or find much about like why they did that. I mean, Mm -hmm. to me, it would kind of be like, okay, well, they just fought in a war. They learned all these things. They went to China They're around Chinese people all the time. They weren't able to learn Chinese very Mm, well because so they ended up on these farms and it was like, you know, OK, well, let's just go back to America. And and upon returning to America, it was interesting because they all returned together in July of 1955. They were arrested and then they were released when it was found that the military no longer had jurisdiction over the defectors because they were dishonorably discharged. Mm. So like the moment they defected, the military dishonorably discharged Mm. all of them. And then when they came back and the military wanted to prosecute them, the Supreme Court was like, you already
0: punished us. Yeah, you
1: can't do that now because you have no more jurisdiction over them. But yeah, Willis and Adams were with nine others who went to university, which obviously being a black man is like something that he would have had a very hard time doing in the United States Mm. in the 50s. So they went to university, learned Chinese. He eventually ended up getting a degree in Chinese literature. And the two of them ended up working at the foreign language press as translators, basically. And so that was like essentially how he worked while he was over there. He also did, as I mentioned, give off some speeches during the Vietnam War about why black soldiers specifically should put down their weapons and not fight. Willis, he played basketball at a university. and, in China and basically followed the path of Clarence Adams. He also started working at the foreign language press. And he ended up coming back a year earlier than Adams. He came back in 1965 and his book, Turncoat, the story of Morris R. Willis as told to J. Robert Moskin was published in 1966, which was the year that Clarence Adams ended up coming back with his family. And Clarence Adams came back because the civil rights movement. He also, Mm. he kind of felt like I mean, that was one aspect of it. He kind of felt like, well, you know, black people over in the United States are fighting for their rights. That's a place where I should be. And it was also because of the Cultural Revolution, which happened in China in the 60s, which I actually don't have a a whole great understanding of the Cultural Revolution. It's, I mean, the Chinese Revolution in general is, is a massive topic that I just briefly started to scratch the surface of while learning more about these two guys. I do know that during the Cultural Revolution, though, there was it was an attempt to kind of weed out like bourgeois or capitalist influences on the revolution. And so during that time, foreigners did kind of come under more suspicion and did kind of become a little bit more uh, clamped down on than they had been in the years prior to that. And that also played a role in why they ended up both of them leaving. But they both married Chinese women while they were over there and had kids and then ended up coming back to the United States. Clarence Adams, when he returned, he was interviewed by the FBI and he was surveilled for like 10 years after his return to the United States. He didn't, at that point in time, you know, he never, he never renounced China. He never had a bad word to say about China. To him, China like provided him with the opportunities to get an education, to marry the person that he wanted to, to have a life that he could be happy with, you know? And he did experience like small little bits of racism in China, but mm-hmm. nothing to the extent he experienced in the United States. And it's it's actually, it was funny reading both these stories back to back because, you know, he mentions a specific incident where he got kicked by a, uh, like a Chinese youth in the ass you know, because he was black and he got angry about it. And like, you know, later on, he was kind of just like, he felt it was more of a um, not used to seeing black people kind of thing more mm-hmm. than it was like a specifically targeted racist action. Mm-hmm. But like Willis in his account talks about how the Chinese were like super racist and stuff. And it was just like, Clarence Adams does not have that interpretation of the Chinese at all. In right. fact, he he felt like even when he was a POW, that the Chinese soldiers treated him equally to white soldiers, which was like, you know, he hadn't experienced things like that before, you know, so. Right. But yeah, and uh, this Willis guy, I was reading his book and it was funny because I opened it up and it had some guy's name in it. I can't read the name. It kind of looks like maybe it says Hannah, but it says the date on it is 72270, And it was all written in like everything that this other person who had this book before me underlined is in blue ink. And so I underlined everything that I did in black ink. And it was just interesting to read this and see what this person back in the 70s was underlining. And it's just like the stuff they chose not to underline, you know, was just like...
0: Yeah, yeah, it was super interesting. And like- um, Were you able to like psychologically profile the previous owner of the book? A little bit. Or at least politically profile them?
1: Yes, a little bit, yeah. Like I I even remembered like there was a couple of times where they would underline specifically like, bad things about right. Chinese communism and then they wouldn't underline things about oh yeah I even put it right here I said where's your highlight you know brainwashed <laughs> much you know like um but anyway it was kind of funny because like I said most of his complaints in this book tend to be just about the state in general and a state that is like China in 1949 at the end of their revolution well I don't know if a revolution ever really ends but like at the at least their victory over the nationalists you know was very uh rural peasant-based economy you know and then you know throughout the 50s they're working on trying to industrialize trying to trying to get up to a point where they're able to be on par with like the west same sort of thing happened in in the ussr after the the revolution there right and so like a part of it's kind of like well, hey man, like, you know, maybe take into perspective like the shit that these people have been through over the past like couple hundred years, you know, which yeah,
0: high illiteracy, deep poverty and among most of the population, you know, it's a little different trying to snap back from that.
1: Yeah. And and it was just funny because like I just read these couple things specifically because like he would complain, like it was almost like these were like gotcha moments about the Chinese communist government. Mm-hmm. But as I read it, I'd be like, Hmm, that doesn't seem so bad, dude. Like he talks, um, so at the foreign language press, at one point they were put on rations because there had been like famines and stuff, right? Times were very hard. As a foreigner, my rations were better than the Chinese had, including my wife, whose rations were average for a Chinese. You know, this was written in the sixties. So, um, for example, I was allowed four pounds of meat a month. Kai Yen's ration, that's his wife, was two ounces a month. I was allowed about three pounds of cooking oil a month. She was allowed three ounces. Damn. I was allowed 40 pounds of rice. She got 26 pounds a month. I was allowed 30 pounds of vegetables a month. She only got what she could buy outside. And if she was able to find five pounds a month, she was lucky. But what we had together was enough to keep us going. And it's like, okay, man, I'm glad that you have enough to keep you going and that your job is providing you with the rations to keep you going, which is definitely not something that would happen in the United States. And then he says the foreign language press supplied them with a two-room apartment with a bath and a small kitchen, including water and electricity, and it cost them about $5 U.S. a month. And then he also mentions working at his job was not terribly hard, but a lot of it was interesting, and our lives began to fit into a pattern there. I had only about 10 or 15 days of work a month. There are just too many people in China to keep everyone busy full time. Then I'd go home for lunch, usually rice and a couple of side dishes. We were allowed a half hour for lunch and an hour and a half for a nap. Um, but I'd listen to the news broadcasts <laughs> again and read until 2, then back to work until 6. And it's like, yeah, man, China
0: sounds terrible. Oh, I got <laughs> to work 10 days a month. And in, in yeah. that work day, I get a two-hour nap in there. Yeah, um, yeah, that's was- wild. I mean, if anything, to me, that is a critique of the Chinese state. In that the white Korean War veteran got all this extra food, yeah, yeah right they were trying yeah. to like treat them good. They're trying to treat them better than average Chinese citizens because they they didn't want to like the American to waste away,
1: yeah. there was actually another point where I had to keep crossing out in China, when he's talking about the police, like the police are a dreadful annoyance. And I had to cross out in China because that's just true. <laughs> and then the ordinary attitude of Chinese cops, I had to cross out Chinese is one of arrogance, arrogance and haughtiness with foreigners. So I was like, no, man, that's just cops in general. But yeah, so it was interesting because he, he was very critical in this book about his time in China. And in Adam's book, he actually mentions when he does return to the United States, like I said, he wasn't, he was interrogated a bit He was surveilled for a while. He didn't get, once he came back to the United States, he didn't get active in any anti-war movements and he didn't get active in um, any sort of communist movements when he got back. But, uh, you know, they were worried that that was
0: something that he would he would do. Well, you're probably less likely to also if, you know, the FBI is. Just literally yeah, right? watching you and waiting for you to do it, so they can sweep you up. <laughs> it's like
1: yeah, right. And so he ends up, him and his wife end up owning a a couple uh, Chinese restaurants
0: mm-hmm.
1: cool. in the United States, and and I want to say it was Memphis because he ended up moving back to Memphis, but. There was this little anecdote in his book where he says, another problem with him being back home was that my mother wanted me to follow the example of Morris Willis, who had returned to the States the previous year. Willis wrote a long article for Look Magazine for which he supposedly received $10,000 in 1966 money, I don't know, or 1965 money. I don't know the uh, what that would be in That's today's That's like two money. houses. Yeah, right. Yeah. So he said that his life was terrible in China and that he now regretted his decision to go there. Then shortly after I returned, so this is in 1966, Willis published his autobiography Turncoat in which he went into even greater detail about how bad things were in communist China. Mm-hmm. My mother and sisters hoped that I would do the same thing, not just for the money, which we all badly needed, but to redeem myself as Willis had done. A couple of years later, Willis and his family came to visit us in Memphis. When I asked him why he had written so neg- negatively about his experiences in China, he said, now that you are in Rome again, you better act like a Roman. I disagreed and told him, I'm not going to bite the hand that fed and educated me and gave me a good job. You should also remember that both of us married Chinese women. Our families remained friends, but I could never agree with what he had said about China.
0: Wow. So it's just
1: like, yeah, after reading him say that and then reading this book, I mean, throughout this whole book, I was like, you're an idiot, dude. But yeah. like, um, after reading what Adam said about him, it was like, okay, this
0: is definitely like- Right, he's like, come on, dude, you know it wasn't like that. Like, he's yeah, like, yeah. I read your book. Like that was a bunch of bullshit. And like yeah. clearly you did it for money.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, anyway, that was like, yeah, so it was a super, I mean, an interesting story. And then, like, obviously, since then, there's been other people that have defected. Obviously, the most recent one is Private King, but even in the 60s, there was a there was a soldier who during a field exercise in Korea, his unit was going to be going to Vietnam. And during a field exercise in Korea, he jumped the DMZ to North Korea so he didn't have to go fight in vietnam and there was another guy whose name actually escapes me now but he also went to north korea and made um some propaganda
0: movies and actually has an imdb page actually the the guy that crossed to not go to vietnam there's a documentary i saw the documentary about this guy it's a 2006 film called crossing the line james dresnak is that him okay
1: no i've got this guy here uh Robert Jenkins, who it says abandoned his patrol and rocked across the Korean demilitarized zone in January 1965.
0: Oh, that's the one who did it to not go to Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. Good for him. This guy went in 1962. James oh,
1: Dresden. okay, yeah. Yeah, I see him now, yeah.
0: And uh, Crossing Lines, a really cool, really cool film. Seven soldiers defected after the Korean War total.
1: Yeah, that's what it looks like. I'm seeing a couple of, uh You got... Larry Allen in '62 and Dresnock, both in '62. Mm-hmm. Parrish in '63, Jenkins in '65, Chung in '79,
0: White in '82, and Travis King in '23. Cool. So it's not they weren't the last. The POWs who stayed were not the last.
1: No, no, and I don't I don't think they're going to be the last. I mean, we just had King Cross, and you know, according to like we said in the beginning of the episode, according to the North Koreans, it was because of racism in the military and you know who knows that might have played some sort of aspect but yeah the the majority of the original 21 from the korean war all came back to the united states at some point and you know they all a lot of them died in the uh in the 80s and and some of them in the early early 2000s but yeah so some of them one of them actually married a uh a Czechoslovakian woman who he met in China. And then he ended up moving to Czechoslovakia with her. So it was, I don't know, it was super interesting to like dive a little bit deeper into like who the guys were behind that picture, you know, and to read about what they went through and the choice they made to, to stay in China, which, you know, I think was a great choice for them
0: to have made, you know, so I mean, is Clarence Adams in that photo? By any chance yeah yeah he uh, let me bring
1: up that photo um i'm pretty sure he is in it yeah he is the one black guy in that photo no shit yeah
0: wow well that's so cool to learn all the stuff about him yeah he sounds awesome
1: yeah he sounded like he was really cool he died in 1998 or 7 i think yeah here he is in 98 yeah so just 13 months before he died so that would have been he would have died in 99 but here he is with his daughter and his spouse there, man, from China. Yeah. But yeah, man. So he he seemed like he was a super cool guy. Here he is outside of his, the Chinese restaurant in Memphis. Man. Yeah. So, but yeah, so he came back and he taught Chinese, I want to say, and in, in a university too, as well. I, I know Willis did that, taught Chinese. Oh, one of the other things I thought was really interesting was while he was in China, he went to the some of the African embassies that were Mm -hmm. there and, you know, hung out with a lot of Africans in the Mm -hmm. Ghanaian embassy specifically. And he had this really interesting he he said, um, which made me write down how like America fucks up black children, because he said that growing up, he had a very negative impression of Africans. White America had distorted our minds about such things. We were told that Africans were savages who ran around in grass skirts, lived in jungle huts, and were cannibals. Worst of all were the Tarzan movies with the great white ape man. Tarzan was so bad he could go into an African village and totally frighten all the inhabitants. They would be screaming and hollering and trying to run away. I was just a dumb kid. I didn't know any better. I thought, hey, Tarzan ought to kill them all. I was cheering for the great white man. Every black kid thought like that no one had ever told us about the magnificent African kingdoms of antiquity, or that Africans had highly developed civilizations long before the Europeans did. So these were all things he started to learn when he was in China, hanging out at the Ghanaian embassy with like people from Africa. Wow. So that's another thing that opened his mind when he was in China. And I was just like, "God damn, America just like fucks people up. This
0: <laughs> <man."> <laughs> wow. But
1: um, but yeah, man, it was it was a super interesting story. Um, I was happy to find out more about the guys in that picture. I mean, I think all of Them are insanely brave, Mm -hmm. you know, whether they ended up. I mean, granted, if I ever saw Willis in real life, if he was still alive, I'd be like, You're a loser, dude. You know, come on, like none of that shit you're saying is true. You're yeah, it was, I think, the right thing to do. And, you know, it was a blow to I think to American imperialism because America realized that they couldn't win militarily and they wanted that Mm -hmm. propaganda victory, and these 21 soldiers prevented them from getting that. Yep. You know?
0: Yep. So wow. Well, Dan. Thank you for taking us through that radical military history. I loved it, especially learning about Clarence Adams specifically. is super cool. And yeah, I don't well, yeah, even man. know how to wrap it up. I think it was, just, yeah, know, that was real know. solid. It's, all, it's
1: just like, yeah, you just got to like sit in silence and just reflect on yeah. like, damn, dude, like what a life that guy had. And like, and to do those things to speak out against like, I mean, that's like, um, granted, I, I mean, I was in high school when, when 9-11 happened. But it was like, you know, I feel like a pretty similar kind of Kind of moment then, where it was like you were a pariah if you spoke mm-hmm. out against the war and war. And granted, at that time I wasn't like a super political person, but like I remember, um, because I was a freshman in high school at the time, and I remember, uh, I remember having a pep rally and like all of us waving American flags and like the proud to be an American, <laughs> you know, song being played, and it was like, I mean, you know, so to speak, and you know, back then, off of World War II, you know, commun because McCarthy, and one of the things we didn't mention was the entire time they were in China was like, you know, that was the Red Scare with McCarthyism, you know, so it was like crackdown in America on all these suspected communists. So what they were doing was insanely brave, you know? Mm -hmm. So,
0: yeah. so yeah, Good shit. Well, looking forward to the next one.
1: I was actually wondering, like, I don't know if, I mean, if this would be a good idea, but like if listeners have heard of certain things and they like maybe want me to try and dive into things that they've maybe heard of, I'd like to try and find some stuff from more recent conflicts, specifically mm-hmm. Afghanistan and Iraq.
0: But yeah, that's the thing is we need new historians to do that shit. So to, um, <laughs> yeah. maybe it could yeah. be well, your doctoral work.
1: Yeah, yeah. We'll see. I'll see what I can start to maybe <laughs> scrounge up in, in there. Um, yeah, because at least then there would be a lot of people to, inter- to interview, right? right. Like can't really catch up with these dudes who did this stuff in Korea or earlier
0: because, yeah. you know. Absolutely. But yeah, man. Yeah, and any listeners got ideas or, or things they've heard of they want to know more about, want to deep dive on, hit us up, let us know. Nice left.